Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you with our July podcast of AJT Highlights for the July issue, the Editor's Choice Picks for that month. As always, I'm joined by Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. And today we have an editorial fellow, Prince Singh, who is a finishing up his transplant nephrology fellowship at Duke and will be starting as an attending in Duluth, Minnesota in a transplant program there. And um, so let's get started with the uh, table of contents for this month. We have four papers that we're going to review. The first one will be reviewed by Prince, and it's entitled A Pilot Randomized Control Trial of the Novo Bellatacid-Based Immunosuppression Following Antithymosic Logulin Induction in Lung Transplantation by Huang et al., and there's a paired editorial by Newell and Larson. And then uh, Prince will review a paper, a basic science paper, entitled T-Cell Depletion Increases Humoral Response by Favoring T-Flotular Helper Cell Expansion by Gasson et al. Then we'll move over to uh, Roz, is going to present a paper entitled Listing at Non-Local Transplant Centers is Associated with Increased Access to Deceased Donor Kidney Transplantation by Ross Driscoll. And then I will finish with a, a liver transplant paper entitled Artificial Intelligence to Identify Harmful Alcohol Use After Early Liver Transplant for Alcohol-Associated Hepatitis uh, by Lee et al. Okay, without further ado, uh, Prince, we, let's uh, welcome, and we're glad to have you, and you can get started on the first paper. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lewitsky, for a very kind introduction. So uh, our first paper today um, is... Uh, is a short study. It's a, it's, it has happened it, at two centers and it's a pilot uh, study which basically was done to see if Belotacept can be used as a standing immunosuppression regimen in uh, lung transplant uh, patients. To keep in mind, this was a phase two ra uh, randomized study and the main objective of the study was to assess the feasibility of conducting further study of phase three multi-center randomized control trial to assess the efficacy and safety of belatacept-based immunosuppression. So to begin with, it's, uh, it's a smaller study, but uh, it was done primarily with that intention in mind. So uh, to lay laying, the, laying the, the background of the study, in general, we know that overall close to 4,500 lung transplants happened worldwide. That was uh, in 2021. And over half of them have happened in United States, uh, close to 2,500 lung transplantation in 2021 alone. Just as in kidney transplantation, uh, we have chronic allograft lung dysfunction or chronic lung allograft dysfunction, CLAD, which remains to be a challenge uh, in terms of uh, long-term survival of lung allograft. And that's one main reason why the median survival is a mere six years following lung transplantation. And it has been seen independently that it's the presence of DSA in the first year post-transplantation that is uh, subsequently related uh, with eventual development of CLAD and graft failure. And uh, there are multiple studies that have shown that even in first year, uh, it can be as high as 61% uh, of transplant patients who go on to develop DSAs. And um, we have experimented data in this regard as well that it's not just a correlation, but DSA can have a direct pathogenic role in development of uh, GLAD as well. So this is an issue. Uh, GLAD continues to be a, a limiting factor, survive, uh, putting a break on long-term uh, good survival for lung transplant patients. So 
taking the clue from the kidney side in some ways, uh, especially with the benefit trial that has shown in a very nice way that when we use Belletacept as maintenance immunosuppression and in, in light of its being compared with cyclosporin, the patient outcomes were better in terms of mortality. The allograft did better. And more importantly, the GFR was preserved over the period of seven years and after that. But the reason the authors of our current study chose to replicate this in their side was not just along the li uh, lines of better graft survival or better life survival for patient, but more along the lines that the DSA was less in the patient that were on Belletacept arm compared to the cyclosporin arm. So the thought process was that if we are going to do the same in lung transplant patient, use Belletacept, probably less recipients will go on to develop DSA as compared to if uh, recipients remain on calcineurin inhibitors. That by extension will cause less of chronic uh, lung graft dysfunction and hence better outcome long term. So with that in mind, they had two arms. This was a randomized control study. Um, and one arm uh, had, uh, initially there were 49 patients who were enrolled, but we we came down to 27 patients. And of that, uh, 14 were, I would correct myself, 14 were in the control arm that did not got belatacept and 13 were in the arm that got uh, belatacept. So just to like make it very clear and simple, all trial re recipients received thymoglobulin for three doses and all patients all trial part participants also got methylprednisolone. The difference was patients in the Bella arm were going to get Belletacept on the day of transplantation, which was day zero, tacrolimus and prednisone on the same day. And this will continue for three months and end on day 89. And then on day 90, Belletacept will be replaced by Celcept or MMF. And after that, Bella and MMF would continue for one year. And then there would be a 30-day follow-up. On the other hand, in the control arm, uh, there was not going to be any belletacept. Patients will be treated with the standard regimen, which is tacrolimus, salcept, and prednisone beginning day zero, the day of transplant, can continue till 360, uh, one year. Uh, we will directly go to the results. Uh, unfortunately, the study had to be terminated early because uh, the Data Safety Monitoring Board very rightly noticed that there were at least three deaths very early on in the belletacept arm, followed by two more deaths later on after the study was temporarily halted, leading to a total death of total five deaths in the intervention or Abella arm compared to no death in the control arm. The cause of death were identified in the first three cases as COVID-19, hemothorax and restrictive allograft syndrome. The last two deaths were due to pulmonary embolism and PTLD. But the, the data safety monitoring board and the authors concluded that all of the deaths may have been caused by investigational reg regimen, aka use of belletacept in that group. Even though the authors could not identify any in particular etiology that would explain the cause of death, but uh, it was very clear that there was no mortality on the other side. Granted, we had the smaller numbers. Just to be clear, there were no differences seen in freedom from developing DSA between the two groups. And there was no difference seen in acute cellular rejection either uh, in between the two groups. We all know that both of the groups had received thymoglobulin and uh, methylprednisone uh, initially. So uh, I think this brings us to um, the uh, overall, like how to proceed from this point. So there have been some studies in non-renal 
solid organ recipients of using belatocept as a maintenance immunosuppression. There are very few and far in between. One study has been led by Dr. Manon herself. She, I think she, uh, she has been an author on a study that uh, uh, that studied this in simultaneous pancreas kidney um, uh, transplant patients, where patients on belatocept clearly did not have a better outcome in terms of graft or otherwise. Likewise, this has also been seen in liver recipients, patients, and graft survival was not better on belatocept. So, in some ways, the finding that we are seeing in this study is uh, uh, kind of reaffirming, so to speak, that uh, this might not be the regimen for all the patients, especially in the non-renal, and talking particularly about the lung transplant patients here. And uh, probably we would need, to a certain extent, a sense of the stratification that who may be the better, who may be the patients who would rather benefit from this, from this uh, basically uh, uh, regimen or uh, formula of, uh, of, of, of immunosuppression regimen. The, the editorial uh, that comes along with it does mention about that uh, it may be possible that if we can, to begin with, if we can identify high-risk patients, those are the patients uh, we better not use belatocept in those patients and continue with calcineurin inhibitor, especially tacrolimus. And there are some there are some evidence from the lab laboratory side which shows that there there is a subset of patients who tend not to do well with belatocept, especially these, the patients who have CD fifty seven C four D cells positivity, because these patients tend to show uh, belatocept resistant uh, to when it comes to rejection. And likewise, a recent study has also shown that there is a subset of patients who, uh, in whom T helper 17 cells, like the CTL, the, the cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen for the CTLA where belatocept actually works in the fusion protein, that expression is enhanced on T helper cell 17 cells, which caused resistance to the use of belatocept. So probably I think the next steps, and I'm sure, you know, Dr. Manon and Dr. Lewerski, you all can also shed some light on this. Would this be a uh, next step to go if you are going to do a larger trial or further study to stratify patients based on these CD4T markers and then randomize them to Bella, keep them on the more standard regimen. So I but, think... Uh, yeah. well, well, Prince, thanks for that summary. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things you could say. And I think, you know, it's disappointing, clearly, a very small study. And is this coincidence that the deaths with COVID were COVID-related and why not in the standard of care arm? And is Bella really that much of an effector? And it doesn't, as I recall, this paper came in during COVID before vaccination. So, you know, I think we questioned a lot in, in some of our CTOT studies, which is the one, the pancreas with, with Peter Stock, who conceived it, is, you know, did we design these things properly? Because as the Emory Group, who does the editorial talks a lot about you know, keeping people on quadruple therapy. And there certainly is real world evidence that's been submitted to one of the journals that I've had an option to see that shows this really strong evidence of EGFR improvement in kidney over the long run. That's very beneficial. And so changing your mindset and, and again, maybe the trial, the next trial is you keep them on tack. But this was a population with a lot of infection. And yes. again, some of these other solid organs, they get a lot of infections, more so than, than the kidney, kidney, particularly in the lung. So 
you know, it may just not be ready for prime time. I mean, I remember the serolimus studies in liver that mm-hmm. were disastrous and it really put sort of the kibosh on using it. But I still see liver patients on it because people sort of introduce it later. And so perhaps the immunogenicity early needs full guns and then you can convert if you had a reason to. And I like the notion of assessing risk. I don't know if the T-cell populations has been, you know, your institution and Dr. Kirk have talked about that a lot. And it's hard to replicate some of those pre-transplant results, but maybe the risk factor is, you know, epitope matching, that kind of thing. I always sort of wonder if, um, you know, with these novel biologic agents, like how can we immune monitor better when they're on it? I mean, that's the problem is we don't have levels. You know, I know from the, from IBD, you know, where there's, you know, you can look for antibodies against the drug as it clearly shows that it predicts ineffectiveness. But that's the problem is you don't know, um, you can't really, you're just, you know, giving it right every month is basically. And, and there's no real specific way to monitor for it. And I think that's what actually happened in the liver study is ultimately over time, there was increased mortality for some reason. And it's probably over immunosuppression in, in our group. So it's complicated, but I feel like there's a, there's, like you said, there's a place for this um, in, in sort of select patients. It'd be nice to be able to personalize mm-hmm. this therapy or other biologic therapy more. Maybe, maybe that's the next decade or two of, 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 of you know, research in, in personalized medicine. And and I'd really encourage the readers, you know, out there, open up your journal and, and take a look at this editorial because it has a really pretty table that I can imagine will be showing up in talks on this topic with a summary of the different organs and studies. So it's great. Cool. Great, Prince. You want to move on to the uh, yes. the next paper, the T-cell paper? Yes, uh, this is the yeah. This is our second paper today, and uh, this goes a little bit more deeper in the in the mechanistic pathway. So. This paper is basically, in some ways, exploring the role of T follicular helper cells, which are a subset of CD4 T cells, and seeing their uh, uh, their role, especially in the light of uh, induction therapy with thymoglobulin. So this study is done by the group uh, at uh, Brigham System, Harvard, and uh, Gessen is the lead author here. Uh, just to keep in mind that very recently they had published uh, another basic science study, and this study is likely a more clinical follow-up of that study. So just to uh, lay the lay the, uh, the the background of the study, uh, as in the world of kidney transplantation, we know that antibody-mediated reaction continues to be our Ashley's heel. Uh, despite of very good first year's uh, graft outcomes, we, we are struggling with long-term kidney uh, function survival, likely in one ma- major reason being antibody-mediated rejection. The study was focused on T follicular helper cells, which, as I said, is a subset of CD4 T cells. And as some, most, some of us would know, and probably most of us, our, our audience will know that they are, their main role is basically helping in the B cell differentiation. They, they are normally located in secondary lymphoid organs, spleen, lymph nodes, and they help in the maturation of B cells either into plasma cells making antibodies or into memory B cells. Now, this, this interaction in, in itself is a little bit not so straightforward. The differentiation of T cells into T follicular cell is affected by interleukin-21. And that interaction is also, that differentiation is also in some ways 
uh, affected by the expression of BLIMP1 and BCL6 expression. We, we, the study necessarily does not go into that, but this is just uh, setting the introduction that how T follicular, how CD4 T cells will differentiate into T follicular helper cells or T follicular regulator cells is not a straightforward answer. And this is not just dependent upon one cytokine such as interleukin 21, but there is uh, uh, behind the scene uh, another expression, protein interaction going on that will decide the path the T, uh, CD4 T cell will take. How did this become relevant in this study? So the group had previously shown that in patients who received kidney transplant, there was a greater percentage of circulating T follicular cells. And likewise, they had shown that this was even higher in transplanted patients who had pre-existing DSA. So it, it's almost becoming a more or less established knowledge now that the frequency of T follicular helper cells correlates positively with both DSA and thereby extension antibody-mediated rejection in kidney transplant patients. So this study went a step further and tried to see what role does exposure to thymoglobulin play in the overall schema of differentiation of T follicular cells moving towards B-cell arena and therefore antibody production and by extension rejection. So the terms of the methods that, we, uh, that the authors did, just to simplify here, there are two groups they chose. One is, of course, the survival group, which are uh, human kidney transplant recipients who received a deceased donor kidney and were, of course, uh, induced with RADG. There, the, the, the group took uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells before and after transplantation to assess the response after RADG administration. And then the more deeper part was the non-survival-based models, which are the well-known murine models, the C5, C57, BL6, which served as a recipient mice group in this model, and the B, ALB, uh, C mice, which is the B albino mice, which is served as a donor in the group. And uh, both of these murine, from recipient to donor, the donor was to get immunoglobulin, which would serve as control, and the intervention arm in that group will be the, the mice that is going to get murine thymoglobulin. They are going to measure total immunoglobulin and its efficacy in terms of checking for the level of C4, CD4, ap cell, absolute count, percentage count, CD8, uh, T-cells, absolute and percentage count in both peripheral blood and secondary lymphoid organs. Last but not the least, it's important that they also use the immunized model known as the NPOVA model, where you expose the, the mice of interest with this antigen and then assess the antibody response to this antigen with and without your agent of interest, which in this case was uh, thymoglobulin. So I will go straight to the results here. So in the human recipients who received deceased donor and got thymoglobulin, an increase of circulating T follicular cell percentage was seen six months after transplantation when compared with pre-transplantation level. Importantly, however, the CD4's uh, total cells remained uh, significantly depleted. So even if CD4 T cells were depleted, the percentage of circulating T follicular helper cells was higher in kidney transplant recipient who did receive thymoglobulin after uh, their disease on the uh, transplantation. Coming to the mouse area, in the BLBC kidneys that got transplanted into the C57 BL6 mice, they got murine thymoglobulin on post-op day one and four. In these patients, the percentage of CD4 T cell was decreased but the T follicular cell percentage was higher in thymoglobulin-treated mice at post of day 7 and post of day 20. 
when compared to controls, which only got immunoglobulin and no thymoglobulin. There was no difference in the absolute number of total uh, B cells and T follicular helper cells in the spleen uh, in, in this population. Likewise, the percentage of both donor-specific antibody and anti-HLA antibody was higher in the serum and hemoglobulin G-positive B-cells higher in spleen in the group that received thymoglobulin compared to the immunoglobulin control group. They did the histology specimen as well. There was not much difference between the thymoglobulin group and the control group in terms of tubulitis and interstitial inflammation, but more microvascular inflammation was seen, such as glomerulitis and peritubular capillitis in the thymoglobulin group when compared to controls. There was one interesting finding when they added tacrolimus to the thymoglobulin group. They were they noticed that the total CD4 T cell percentage decrease, and so did the absolute numbers compared to thymoglobulin alone. And this will become an important uh, point of extension later in the study that when you are giving thymoglobulin along with tacrolimus or sarolimus, uh, you are seeing a decrease compared to if you're not just if compared to if you're just giving thymoglobulin alone. More mechanis- mechanistically, the authors went further and uh, they were able to see a correlation between thymoglobulin level and interleukin-2 level, six hours uh, in the model that was immunized with NPOA. And they also measured BCL6 expression and the transcription factor PSTAT3 that was increased in the thymoglobulin-treated mice. But when they uh, put back interleukin-2 in the picture, the thymoglobin-treated mice uh, showed a decrease of BCL6 expression. So it gets, it's a lot of in the data here, a lot of information, but basically the authors to summarize nicely, they, they have shown that thymoglobulin induction leads to an expansion of T follicular helper cells and thereby by extension enhances humoral response, especially in the absence of additional immunosuppressive drugs. And again, this sounds more like bridge statement. I do not see that the study was necessarily designed to show this, but there's some finding that came out. The immunoglobulin, uh, the, the thymoglobulin induction did cause T lymphopenia, uh, the author's site, which create a favorable environment for T follicular helper cell expression, especially seeing the relation between low interleukin-2 but higher interleukin-21 levels. So they, the, the authors are finally lays, laying down two points here, uh, which is kind of more speculative and uh, more uh, hypothetical, I would say, and leading the readers to decide. Question is, does thymoglobin really favor uh, more or push, push forward a more stronger or a fertile soil for B cell response? And this, the studies lays forward, lays forward this question. They are not trying to answer this. The evidence based on the mice model showing us that giving thymoglobulin alone, not in not with calcium inhibitors or sarolimus, did show an enhanced T follicular cell expression. So using this as an extension, the authors recommend that it would be better to delay in, it, it. We should be cautious, especially in the clinical practice, to delay initiation or to minimize calcium inhibitors dose early on or withdrawal of calcium inhibitors early on uh, as it might uh, basically push forward the already ripe environment for antibody-mediated rejection that happens when someone gets thymoglobulin. The authors, to help us, say that could it be possible that 
if we measure T follicular helper cells absolute numbers along with serum level of interleukin 2 and 21, just as the way we measure DSA, can help us identify who could be the potential uh, patients who are at subclinically at risk of antibody-mediated rejection after getting thymoglobulin. And again, this was a basic science study, and this was not necessarily a clinical study that was um, trying to answer these questions. But given that the study from the previous group had shown this, in the absence of ATG, the current paper from the same group shows the same thing, that yes, there is an expansion of T follicular helper cells, even with ATH uh, thymoglobulin induction, and, uh, and this was seen in the absence of uh, use of other agents. Thanks, uh, Prince. That's a fairly complicated paper to try to explain. I think a couple of points that I sort of had some difficulty completely understanding, and I didn't spend a ton of time delving into it like you did, but um, again, TAC therapy, tacrolimus, inhibits IL-2 transcription. And so um, I'm a little confused why in the mouse model, you give it with ATG and you mitigate the T follicular helper expansion and the antibody production. Um, And they too note that even on individuals that are on TAC, you know, so I I have trouble sort of understanding where the IL-2 fits in and, and its role because it seems to be opposite of some of their mouse findings. I think the concept of, you know, the homeostatic proliferation of T for liquor helper has been shown by other groups. And so I like this paper because they're actually delving into the mechanism. And again, I think it's a little difficult, as cool as mouse models are, and we get funded for them, you know, applying this to what's actually happening in people is really complicated. And they also go on to have a statement that you shouldn't, you know, maybe we shouldn't delay CNI, but isn't the CNI going to reduce IL-2 levels? So, Unfortunately, I don't know if there was an editorial and, and I'd have to really delve in this deeper to, you know, it might be worth, you know, my reaching out to the Riella lab and asking them. But I, I thought it was a quite an interesting paper, no doubt. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. No, you had something more to say, Prince. No, I think that's a very, very good point. It was very hard to read out the role of interleukin 2 and interleukin 21 and limp expression and the BCL6 expression. You get lost somewhere in the discussion. Right, and, but, but the issue may be not, like, you know, it's 100 micrograms versus you need, there's a threshold amount of IL-2 you need to affect this blimp, you know, mm. expression on antibody-producing cells. And so, you know, tacrolimus is like a hammer as far as I'm concerned. And so, again they may have a biorepository where they can measure these cytokines and see is is how low are IL-2 levels. And I certainly know in these Treg studies we did clinically, we really didn't use, you know, we really avoided CNI dramatically. We switched to mTOR because that would be more productive in terms of facilitating Treg responses. So I will have to go back and, and read this a little bit further, but thank you so much for for taking the challenge, the basic <laughs> science challenge, which is always one that I usually get. So um, I, I'm going to go ahead, Josh, if yeah, it's okay, yeah, we, we're going to run ahead. out of time. So um, my paper is completely clinical by Catherine Ross Driscoll, one of our recent uh, fellows for the journal and Rachel Patzer's group at uh, Emory Surgery Transplant, but a number of co-authors. And it examines the notion of patient travel to multi-lifts to uh, increase access. And it examines the ability of how traveling specific 
locales might actually enhance uh, patient improvement and outcome. And so we use transplant rate as the primary metric and patient information is available online through uh, SRTR. They can figure out how quickly they're going to be transplanted. And certainly I know it's been um, one of the reasons patients self-referred to our center. And so they may choose to go to centers with higher transplant rates. And it's often difficult to understand travel. I think travel and the socioeconomic factors for the ability to travel and the distance to travel. And I always argue with my colleagues in New York that you can hop on a subway. If you don't like what's happening at, I won't say what center, you just hop on the one, two or three train and you're in the Bronx and you go somewhere else. It's very different and it's very affordable. But when you're in a rural setting or maybe a less populated setting, you notice I didn't say anything about Chicago, Josh, that it's really more difficult. So this group actually has noted that other groups have studied distance um, and there are some difficulties in using just actual pure distance or donor service area. And they had actually several years ago created what they call transplant referral region where they identify deviations from similar patients' usual place of care within a zip code and define it as a geographic catchment center. And they have used this to assign patients to what is known as their standard place of care based on historical listing patterns for patients in those zip codes. And so this paper um, examines the factors associated with traveling for kidney transplant using these zones, either staying within your home zone going beyond 10 miles in a zone that is actually co-located and they have a metric for how they do that and we don't have time to talk about it or or travel beyond in the distance. And so they are also trying to assess that when you travel, does it have any impact on your wait list and post-transplant outcomes and who does it really benefit? Who are the people that are traveling these distances in these regions and how do they do? And so they included SRTR data after the change in allocation from 2014, not the most recent allocation change, and had about 200,000 individuals from 2014 to 2020 uh, and their zip codes and then used the TRRs based on centers that co-located with each other. And they had three categories, people that didn't travel, they just stayed and listed, then those that traveled to a contiguous neighbor TRR or went beyond that. And then they handled uh, multi-listing specifically using travel as a time-varying exposure, and they included all individuals over time. And for post-transplant outcomes, the travel category was assigned based on the center where they were actually transplanted. So if they had traveled a distance but got transplanted locally, uh, that they were considered a home transplant case. So there is a lot of results here. I can summarize them briefly by saying that about 20, a little over a quarter of patients went outside their transplant, their TRR, 21% of the total population went to a neighbor and only a minority, only about 5.6% of individuals traveled well beyond the neighboring TRR. Okay. And remember, Alaska isn't near anything, nor is Hawaii. And travelers, not surprisingly, were more frequently white, had some education, they came from a lower poverty zip code, and fewer were on Medicaid as a primary insurer. And interestingly, those with greater than five years of waiting time tended to be travelers. I guess they kind of realized their their expectations were longer and longer. And the demographics of those findings are in Table 1. Table 2 looks at the outcomes based on the location, um, no travel, travel to neighbor and travel beyond your neighborhood, and uh, 
Interestingly, there was a statistically significant higher rate if you traveled, if you went to beyond your neighbor, you had a higher rate of travel, about a 19% increase in travel. Um, and likewise for living donors as well. Interestingly, the lowest rate of living donation was actually at your home center, which I sort of found kind of interesting that you partner and take your partner or your living, your potential living donor. Interestingly, sort of a little bit of an opposite, the, the mortality rate was slightly higher. It was not statistically significant when you traveled to a neighbor and beyond, but there clearly was a trend and it's not clear if these patients um, it's because of their waiting time. They did some adjustments, but the but the relationship was so close that it was really difficult. And so death on the waiting list was clearly different than you'd expect, perhaps because they knew they had longer waiting times. And so they were traveling. And so that was a higher risk patient population. Um, and then death after transplant was significantly lower if you had the opportunity to travel uh, beyond I think the, the positive impacts on post-transplant survival were especially seen in women, uh, patients of Hispanic and Asian ethnicity, private insurance, no surprise, living versus deceased. And they actually do some sensitivity analyses about the geographic location we don't have time to talk to. I think importantly, what they found that's not comes out until you really have to read the paper is that Black patients had less of a positive impact from traveling and that Medicare patients similarly when they traveled didn't really get an impact. Um, and if you looked at who was doing the traveling geographically, there's a very pretty figure, figure one, when you see the proportion of patients traveling to contiguous neighbors, it was the Northeast and the Southeast. I'm surprised about the Southeast because the population, there's not public transportation like there is in the Northeast. And those that went beyond neighbors, no surprise, places like Hawaii, the upper Midwest, where there's not a lot of activity in transplant. And again, the Northeast, again, where there is an opportunity to travel. So paper does note that travel can have an impact on pre-transplant weightless death and post-transplant outcomes. And you know, travel is part of what happens with other diseases like consider oncology and how many of you get commercials on TV to go to MGH or the Mayo. And so, um, you know, are individuals of less resources likely to travel? And even when they can travel, why don't they benefit in the same way as others do? And I think transplant is really unique because it's a limited resource. So when you're traveling and you're making a success, the, the system can feel that because those successes at the other centers are limiting the other patients that are there. And so it does increase access to organ supply, but clearly you can see that there's an exacerbation of underlying structural disparities, particularly as pointed out by noting that those individuals that are of a black uh, race and also uh, Medicaid uh, travel and, and uh, Medicaid uh, and primary insurance. And again, they talk a little bit about bans on travel. They're actually, and you know, and what are the metrics? Like, what are people really looking at? And so there actually is a, there's a brief comment. There is a, a meeting for the scientific registry with patients called the task five meeting. This was uh, mandated by um, the HRSA contract for SRTR to meaningfully address patient-centered relevant metrics. And so um, I'll be attending that meeting in a few weeks, um, mostly as an observer and as chair of one of the committees, not as someone that has any brilliant input. And, and to see, I think this kind of data may be informative so that 
you know, patients can really sort of figure if they're going to do this, what's best for them. There were also a couple of letters, the editor, we don't have time that that were, you know, arguing about using TRRs. And I thought the authors did a very nice rebuttal. And you can find them linked when you go online to look at the article. Interesting. I was I was wondering if so to try to explain the the lack of benefit of like the African American population of from from traveling. I wonder if there are just a lot of other factors that are implicated, like um, you know, other social support or economic factors, and maybe um, you know a more a richer population, unfortunately, which has more resources, can make it work when they travel comprehensively, you know. Right. That, and I just think, think here, right, like, you know, the demand of having a care partner or a primary caregiver be in the area for X number of months. And again, yeah. we, you know, well, more wealthy families probably have more people that they can tap into, cousins, aunts, people that are not maybe working necessarily or have flexibility in their jobs to do that. And they're not frontline workers. And so when they take a medical leave, you know, it, it, it counts against them. And so I was sort of thinking that there are, there are really structural differences in patients that don't have resources where, you know, taking this as an opportunity may be difficult. On the other hand, if you're in Manhattan, which I love to talk about, because I'm a native New Yorker, you can go all over town. And so, but maybe and and I probably should talk to Rachel and, and uh, Catherine if they actually parsed out some of these regions and said, you know, this region, we don't see that effect. They didn't. I, I don't recall that they actually did that. There were a couple of supplemental tape, uh, tables, but whether those differences in terms of insurance and um, race were uniformly uh, seen. But I think it's the overall effect is actually quite mm-hmm. meaningful. So this is an important paper. That is going to have clinical impact, I believe. So this paper on uh, this group, a multi-center group, actually, we were one of the centers. This is led by uh, Brian Lee and Nora Tarot at the University of Southern California. They've basically been, uh, had this large database of patients who are undergo early transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis are registered in this database if you're at one of these 10 centers and the, stu- the database is called Accelerate. And the idea here was that um, every center may, do, may transplant a few of these patients, but if we collect 10 centers into, into a registry, that things like predictive models and on outcomes can be developed. And this group already published one uh, predictive model called the SALT score, which essentially is very good at predicting low-risk patients for recurrent drinking after uh, transplantation, liver transplantation. It's called the sustained alcohol use after liver transplant score. And there are a few other scores. And the, the sort of uh, unmet need here is that they have very low per positive predictive value, meaning their ability to detect patients at high risk for relapse is not very good. And so uh, this group, the developed a, essentially a new model using this uh, patients enrolled in this database to try to increase the positive predictive value um, to be able to identify patients that, that probably shouldn't undergo transplantation. And so they use a novel methodology of artificial intelligence. And again, they go through different types of models and you sort of have to understand these machine learning algorithms to 
to um, understand why they chose the specific one, which was this XG boost. And, and kind of reading into it, the reason they use it is that it, if there were missing data, like, a, like a, this, this Accelerate study would do patient interviews for several years long after the transplant to, you know, get at the, you know, relapse and, and, and you know, the, it, it's a whole elaborate evaluation. And, and if the patients and before transplant also, and so the, for instance, if the patient did not answer a question, they, they sort of used that as a not answering questions or missing data as, as not just excluding the data, but actually using it in the models. For instance, it may be a predictor of a worse outcome if they're not answering the questions. Maybe they're encephalopathic. Maybe that's a predictor. So it's kind of an interesting. I had not heard of that before, but it's basically trying to capture as much data as possible because when you look at their sample size, it was not large. They had a training set of 91 patients that used a validation set of 25 patients. In both groups, the, the relapse uh, rate after transplant was about 30%. And so they're trying to identify, develop a model and validate it to identify that 30% of patients. And so they, they fed the model with lots of different factors from their database and came up with a model that it always looks great in the training set, the very high AUC and PPV, NPV. But when they went to the validation set, uh, the PPV was actually pretty good. It was about 0.82. And the negative predictive value was actually 0.81. Um, overall, AUC came down a little bit to 0.69. But essentially, this, this model includes there's a table 13 different factors is table three and they uh, i'm sorry table table two and then they go through some exam patient examples on table three of of low risk a patient with encephalopathy where you can see that there's a higher risk of relapse and and then high risk patient patient number three you can you can plug in all of these different factors um, and some of the, a lot of them are psychosocial related like if they have kids at home it increased the risk of relapse afterwards um, if they were religious, then it decreased their their risk. Um, so not 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 necessarily the traditional ones like numbers of drinks and numbers of rehabs, etc. Other factors that that are uh, important in the whole um, evaluation of these patients. They did actually provide um, very nicely, and I actually copied it and sent it to our group. A the, uh, there's actually an an app uh, online that you can start using in your centers if you want to use this and maybe in combination with the salt, maybe the salt helps, um, you know, screen out some patients, you know, having a negative predictive value. And, uh, you know, you could use this, this test to like identify patients who are too high risk or use them in combination with each other. Um, obviously, the limitations here are, are essentially, this was a retrospective database. It's not a prospective, you know, control trial or Basically, um, data is, is put in um, by the senders into this registry and um, you know, different different practices at different centers, different, they didn't use uniform criteria at each center. There were different, slightly different criteria, although they tried to stick to uh, general principles of, of who they're going to include or exclude. I would like to see this be validated further on a much larger set. I think it might be too preliminary to use this in practice, but certainly maybe if, if, if you can 
really identify this sort of patient three, this high-risk group that can be helpful in selecting this patient, you know, population for transplant. And, and uh, I, I imagine this group, as it continues to grow uh, numbers of patients being transplanted for alcohol use disorder earlier than we used to, maybe they'll be able to do further validation down the road. I, I think that'll be important. So I think very clinically impactful paper potentially. And, and again, check out the paper. Um, they have the model there. If you choose to use it in your center as one of the, um, in, in protocols, if you are transplanting these patients. Um, so, or, so or, very or cool. even, or even to go back retrospectively and look at patients that you followed that had underlying alcohol related disease and say, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I guess that's what they're validating. They're, you know, doing a, an external validation would look like. Mm-hmm. Josh, I'm, I know we're short on time, but, you know, the ethnicity of their population was quite towards Caucasian. Absolutely. But is that, yeah. is that the demographics of alcohol-related liver disease that you see in referral normally? I think the problem, I, yes, in general, but I think, of course, access to transplant and referral for transplant, we know is much lower in underrepresented minorities. I mean, this goes... For all, uh, you know, organ transplants specifically here, you know, I think it's biased towards uh, the, the, you know, more of the majority of the population, the Caucasian population. There is some sort of belief that the African-American population may be less, uh, may have sort of less responses to alcohol or injury to the, huh. to the liver, um, certainly in, in NASH, which is a similar sort of lesion, but, you know, more slowly progressive uh, steatohepatitis. It's pretty uncommon to see it in the African-American population, whereas in Caucasians and Hispanics, it's uh, it's much worse. So, and there's genetics that these PMPLA3 gene mutations that also are shown in alcohol to predict progression that are more commonly seen in those populations compared to African-Americans. So, it's not that we don't see it. So, it might be genetics, but it, it could be referrals and, and the patterns here that we know are a problem mm-hmm. so interesting okay. stuff. yeah wow. interesting yeah great stuff a nice mixture of papers uh thank you Roz. thank you prince for great reviews and um, we will see you in august thank you dr minsky thank you dr Manon. the opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the american journal of transplantation for ajt highlights you can find us online at amjtransplant.com that's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter